please welcome to the stage the incredible Stephen Fry. Thank you very much. My going? Here we are. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, good. Good. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, wow. Goodness me. Hello. Oh. I say. What an incredibly, incredibly warm welcome. And um, welcome uh, to this talk I'm giving on uh, language, uh, in language, obviously. And um, I don't know how many people might want to put their hands up for whom English is not their first language. Quite a few already. There, there, good, excellent. But it's good enough to, to have understood my question, at least, um, which is important. Um, I don't know where to begin, really. I think the easiest thing, anyway, is to show you a trailer of the... Um, of the uh, series that I made called Planet Word, um, and which the BBC very kindly put out because they wanted a maximum and really get as many people as possible to watch it. So they put it out against Spooks and Downton Abbey together to say that we've had gigantic audiences for it. Um, this may be the largest audience for any of the sections of it. No, actually, it's done fine. So there's the screen, and let's, let's run that trailer. Everything that flows from language is really what we are. Language is the birth of the human. There's no other species that has completely different forms of communication in different populations of the species. Whatever we know, whatever we have done over the centuries, just based on language. <laughs> that really hurt. <laughs> I wondered how, when you first sat in the rehearsal room for a read-through or whatever, and had to say to be or not to be. That is the cliche. Yeah, yes. quite. I often said, my, I, I love you so much, I've got to cut my arm and write you a poem in my own blood, you know? <laughs> but people say, oh, lovely, but don't expect that from me. Bollocks! Is that what I'm saying? Bollocks! Bollocks! I think we're living in a time of transition in which the two media coexist, and I think that's what makes it so exciting. Well, there we are. That's 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 the joke. Well, that's very kind of you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> it always um, it it always looks such a, a fantastic gig, doesn't it? To to travel the world uh, at a, a broadcasting company's expense, um, doing something, whatever it might be. I, I I did the went round all the states of of America, all all 50 of the United States of America, in a in a black cab, and I've done a few things involving animals uh, over many continents. And, um, and then I, I, the BBC, because they seemed to like these, asked if I had a subject that I wanted to pursue more than any other. And, um, and it occurred to me that the thing that I've always loved more than anything else is language. I think probably because 
I'm so hopeless at everything else. Or uh, at school, I was not an athlete, I was not graceful, I was not elegant, um, I was not agile or limber or lissom. Um, I couldn't catch a ball, I, 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 I was gawky, I grew too quickly, I didn't feel I can't dance, I couldn't play a musical instrument to, to my own satisfaction, certainly not to anybody else's. Um, I couldn't draw or paint accurately or interestingly. Um, all I could do was the same that everybody else can do, which was talk. But, but I poured into talking more, perhaps, than most of us do. For many people, talking is almost a, a functional thing, a bit like um, we have an alimentary canal, a whole tube. We are a, a tube, essentially. We, we, put, we put sustenance in a hole in our head, and, and, um, uh, and the bits of it that are not very good for us are pushed out a, a hole at the other end. And, and that's functional. It keeps us, keeps us alive, gives us warmth and energy. Um, and some people think that perhaps language is really not much more than that. It's something to use when you want to pick up a phone and order a pizza or um, to tell someone to shut up or um, to impart information. And of course, language does all those things and uh, um, no one could deny that language is a form of communication. But animals communicate, but they don't, in any meaningful sense, have language. Um, we use the word language. Um, we tend in English to be very fortunate to have three source languages at least. Um, so we often have three words for everything. We, 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 have, the, um, we have the sort of Anglo-Saxon word, and uh, uh, the Anglo-Saxon word for, for language is tongue. Um, uh, we, you know, the mother tongue. Um, and actually language is simply Latin for tongue, lingua is tongue, lingua la, langue is tongue in French, langue de chat, you know those lovely biscuits, cat's tongues. Um, and of course, we, we, talk about, um, we talk about people who are um, able to speak many languages being polyglots, and, uh, and glottal uh, is, is, is the um, Greek for, for tongue, gloss, gloss is, 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 is tongue in Greek. So in, in, in all our languages, in English at least, um, the word we use to describe the system of communication that I'm using to you now, and which most importantly, you are also using at exactly the same time. My speaking is an act of language, but your listening is an equal and, and absolutely as extraordinary an act of language as my speaking. There is, there is nothing... There, there would be no point in having anybody who could speak if people were not able to listen and interpret language. And what you are doing is interpreting languages, a language that I speak as I speak it. Um, I have no idea what I'm going to say next. I don't know how the next sentence I'm going to make will end, whether it will end with the word full stop, with the kind of uh, thought that's neatly packaged, or whether I'll suddenly say badminton racket, I, I, which is, it turns out, exactly what I did. Um, and all this is done while I'm actually thinking of other things. I'm, I'm, I'm suddenly become aware in the back of my mind that I need ice. Uh, I'm going to stop off on the way home and get a bag of ice from, uh, from a 24-hour shop that might sell ice with any luck. Um, and I was thinking about that. And, and then when I was thinking about telling you about the ice, I'm thinking about what maybe I'm going to say next. But all I'm demonstrating is the very obvious fact that not only is this extraordinarily sophisticated system of communication that I'm using uh, 
natural to us all and to you all, because you can all understand me, um, but that, um, and not only do we happen to know that it uses more brain processing than any single other thing we do, whether it's music or chess or mathematics or any other um, uh, high-functioning, high-cognitive um, uh, uh, um, operation, language is the thing that uses most. We can do it and do other things at the same time. We are nearly always multitasking. While you're listening to me, you're, you're thinking of all kinds of other things about why he's wearing such peculiar shoes and aren't his trousers a bit dirty and he might have dressed a bit more pleasantly and, and I didn't realize his nose was quite that bent and all kinds of things are going through your head. Now, whether those are going through your head in language or not is a very interesting point. And we all puzzle over the possibility that we think in some metalinguistic way, some way that is outside language, that we think um, just in terms of images that's, that cohere and have a meaning to us in the same way that we dream. And we don't, we're not sure, are we, in our own heads whether, whether we think uh, in language. And the, the most, in where the primary question that most people are interested in language is, is whether or not the, the word is the parent of the thought, or the thought the parent of the word. In other words, um, George Orwell famously in, in 1984 had Big Brother um, um, and his operatives reduce the dictionary uh, every edition until they, uh, they were boasting to Winston Smith at one point in 1984. He said, do you remember it was that thick, the, the dictionary? Said, by, by the sixth edition, it'll be that thick. Uh, and that's how good Newspeak is, because you can take out words like uh, freedom and uh, take out words like choice. And, um, and if the words disappear from the dictionary, Orwell argued, then maybe the words would disappear from human thought. And you couldn't, as it were, rebel if you didn't have a language which could express the yearnings and, uh, for which you strove freedom, opportunity, and all the other things. Without those words, justice, virtue, and so on, um, maybe those, those ideas wouldn't exist. Um, and there is an idea that perhaps, and uh, uh, there are those who put your hands up for whom English is not the first language, there is the idea that we are different simply by virtue of our mother tongue. In other words, do we, do we think differently if we are English speakers, Anglophones, if you wish to call it that, um, to, um, for example, Welsh speakers, even, uh, right on the border, or to, to speakers of um, uh, Incan Peruvian languages, or speakers of one, one of the many hundreds of New Guinea languages. Do they perceive and interpret the world differently because the language makes them do so? Now, a lot of people would like to believe that that was the case, that somehow, um, French people look at the world differently because their language, their language gives them a different, uh, a different sense of the world. And we can make jokes about words that exist in one language but don't in another. I remember being very amused watching the World Cup football in France and hearing the French commentators say, and I thought, oh, that's very good. The French don't have a word for fair play. Yeah, yeah. That, that, how surprising. Um, <laughs> um, and um, uh, then, of course, a, 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 a Frenchman might say, well, you don't have a word uh, uh, sympa, sympathique. Um, we, we have the word sympathetic, but that really means usually rather pitying 
um, um, you, 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 you show sympathy. Um, it can be used in the sense that it's used in Italian, simpatico, or, or in the French, sampa. And, and they say, but, but in fact, you, they, when they say he's not very sympathetic, people say, why? why what's, what's your problem? What's he not being sympathetic about? That's not what they mean. To them, sympathy is more, a bit more like what we would use. You'd, we'd use the word empathy, but it doesn't mean that either. And famously, the Germans have words like Schadenfreude, which is a, 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 a very popular example people use to show um, what they might imagine to be a national difference. Schaden uh, is, is a uh, disaster, disgrace, uh, mishap, and Freude is joy. So Schadenfreude is to take joy in the misfortunes of others. Um, and uh, the fact that we don't have a single word for it in English might make us think that we are very generous, kind-hearted people who would never take, take pleasure from someone else's misfortune. But the Germans naturally needed, as their language grew, we need a word for that feeling we get when somebody is hurt. <laughs> ah, and we'll call it Schadenfreude. Well, uh, all this is very tempting, but any linguists here um, will know that I'm, I'm skirting around a huge issue in the subject of linguistics, which is one of the, one of the studies of, of language. Od oddly enough, uh, although a linguist may regard themselves as the people who most study language, there are different ways of studying language. After all, people who read study language all the time, um, novelists are users of language, poets are users of language at intense pitch, and there are also philologists who trace who are like language um, archaeologists who trace language back to its original roots. Um, and try uh, a bit like ethnologists uh, tracing races back to their roots, that somehow we all started out in the, in the plains of Eastern Africa, somewhere around Tanzania and Kenya, it seems, this species um, uh, that we're all members of uh, developed uh, and, and stood on two legs and became Homo erectus, and then, and then various other types of uh, Australopithecus uh, and early versions of our species that um, developed into what we now call Homo sapiens sapiens, the, the um, uh, wise, the rather misnomer, the, the wise man, the us, the, the thinking sentient ape uh, that we are. But it was only, it seems, 50,000 years ago, which really is a twinkle of an eye, isn't it? It was only 50,000 years ago, it seems, that we developed language that we develop this extraordinary ability that other animals simply do not have. Um, it's very hard to explain quite how you can be clear that other animals don't have it and that we do. Um, well, for example, you could certainly say there is no known example of one animal sitting in front of a whole group of other animals and making its particular noises, whether they be croaks, screams, growls, groans, uh, tweets, whistles, hoots, um, or whatever it is, whether it's a bird or a, or a mammal, um, and all the others sitting around listening. You, you don't get that. Exact, you, know, you don't have a lion version of what we're doing. In other words, you don't have listening. Um, and perhaps, though, I think the most important thing to think about in terms of language, the most fascinating to me, in a way, is so obvious that it's very easy to miss. And, and all of us will know who've ever studied a language um, by which I mean we've tried to learn a language at that period past which we naturally acquire it. 
You all acquired language, I'm assuming, all of you, um, around about the age of two and between two and three, you were beginning to add dozens of words to your vocabulary every day. Um, some, in some cases, for some people, even scores or hundreds a week, new, new words. And you were not only doing that without having to think about doing it, it was, it was no more effort or thought than, than to grow hair or teeth, less effort than growing teeth, in fact. It was just something that was pre-programmed -pro inside you, that, that at this age, you should pick up language, as long as there was language around you, from your parents and from your playgroups and other friends and brothers and sisters and so on, you would just acquire it. And then at some point, mid-teens, perhaps a little earlier, the, the door snaps very, very loudly shut, and, and the effort to learn a language becomes much, much harder and becomes conscious. It becomes, it becomes a, 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 an effort to learn something rather in the way that you might have to learn how to play a musical instrument or something. You really have to instruction, you have to break it down into... And one of the things we all remember, anybody who's had to learn French or Italian or Spanish or German or Latin, or whatever it might be, is, 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 the, um, is a word that we're all familiar with, which is the word tense. Um, uh, not, not in the sense of the uh, tension that uh, we're all feeling, the sexual tension that I can feel between us all at the moment. Not that sort of tense. Uh, tense in the sense of, of, of the, uh, the time in which, at which a verb might, might, might be describing itself as happening. I am sitting here uh, is, is um, a very peculiar uh, English <laughs> uh, way of expressing the present tense. Um, in, in most Europe, in fact, in all European languages, uh, I sit. You, you don't say I am sitting. You don't say je suis asseyant. It would be absurd to say that in French. Um, uh, and we also use the word do um, uh, rather peculiarly. Um, uh, do you like uh, cheese? We say. Again, in French, you wouldn't say faites-vous aimer le fromage. That would just be senseless. They'd just say, like you, cheese. Or, you like cheese? And we can say that, but we have these ams and do's in English, uh, these progressive presents, which are very odd. And what's, what's particularly odd about them is that they're quite new, in fact. Um, uh, for instance, if you think of the, the King James Bible, which is uh, not, 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 so, not so old after all, it's 400 years old, and, um, and, uh, and there's Christ on the cross, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that was, that's very straightforward, and that's how all European languages would express that thought. They know not what they do. For some reason, English, in the next couple of hundred years, got complicated itself, so now we would all say, uh, oh, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They don't know what they're doing, is now how we say it, not they know not what they do. And so our language has changed, obviously, very, very quickly, and continues to change. Um, and it doesn't always, as people assume, simplify or, or erode uh, or be, become impure in some strange fashion. Quite, quite often, the reverse is true. It adds to itself and it, it ornaments itself and becomes more beautiful and more extraordinary. But the point I make about tenses is that was just a, a, little, by, uh, a, little, a little byway, a little excursion into the odd nature of the English tense, which makes you realize, I hope, how hard it must be for people from other countries to learn English when they hear this. Are you going to the cinema tonight? When they, all they want to say is, go you to the cinema tonight. Why, why can't we say that? It's so logical. Instead of this, are you going to the cinema? Do you like this? Instead of like you this. And, you know, but bloody difficult language English to learn, just at those basic levels. But uh, um, an, an easy language to learn at other levels, because it's uninflected, unlike German, for example. But 
The point about the tense is that we can have a past tense. Um, I did sit here yesterday. I sat here two weeks ago. And we can say, let's all come here in two weeks' time. Uh, we, can, we can make a suggestion for the future. And we can, we can make a statement about the past. Now, only language can do that. There is no evidence at all to suggest, no matter how hard we look, that an animal is capable of giving another animal an idea of futurity, an idea of, by the next full moon, let's do this. They will act sometimes very instinctively according to the to moon. Turtles famously will do that and other such animals. But they don't communicate, they don't use language to, to suggest a future. Now, without being able to suggest a future and without being able to transmit a past, we could never have had that thing that we call a civilization. The, the, the ability to plan, to order things, whether domestically in terms of domesticating animals and, and, and planning ahead and storing and passing on information to others. Uh, an animal is capable of passing on information to its young according to a very set set of protocols that, that, that are more or less identical in each in each species is the way, this is the way this bird teaches its young to fly at precisely this age. It waits and there are signals and of course you can fool animals enormously uh, into doing things um, because they don't use language but use triggers and signals. You can, you can fool them to think something is something else. Um, like bird scarers, you put up a big bird, a uh, big um, eye that looks like a, the, uh, uh, um, a falcon or an eagle eye um, and, and birds will keep away from it. They don't examine, or, or it seems, um, um, they, they respond by instinct, mostly. I'm not going to suggest that all animals are equally cognitively different from us, but, but it's quite clear, isn't it, that there is something extraordinary about what we're, no, we're now all engaged in. I'm the one making the noise, obviously, uh, and in a little while I'll ask you to ask me questions, but... but it's this fact that we were able, 50,000 years ago, something happened. Well, there were, there were a number of things that were necessary. I, believe me, I'm no scientist, and I'm certainly not a professional linguist or a professional neurologist, but, but, but I've had the great advantage and, uh, and fortune in being able to talk to some very significant uh, leaders in their field in this regard and read their books. And um, um, there were a number of things that were necessary. One, in order to um, to be able to express the right number of sounds to have anything approaching a vocabulary that could describe the world or the environment in which one lived, even if it's a small environment, if you're a tribe that doesn't travel much, for example, or if it's a huge one, if you're a merchant tribe that uh, uh, goes by boats and travels enormously and deals in all kinds of uh, uh, commodities um, and, and, and so on, like the Phoenicians who, who invented the alphabet, um, then the, 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 this, the, this, the first thing that was necessary was, was, was the, the organ by which we made our noise, which a lot of animals have. A lot of mammals obviously are able to grunt and are able to roar uh, or bark or meow. Or they, they can make noises. Um, but the complexity with which our own larynx, our larynges or larynxes, whichever plural you prefer, work, um, re relied on this sudden moment when they, when they were lowered they came lower down, and, and the tongue 
extended down. And it was, it was a bit of an interesting trade-off, evolutionarily, because human beings are much more likely, it doesn't happen that often, thank goodness, but it does happen, we're more likely to choke on our food because of the way our tongues um, operate than, than other animals ever are. Um, and we were right to notice that it was the tongue that somehow was responsible for this communication, which is why we called the thing that we did that I am doing now language. We called it tonguing, literally tonguing. I know that's weird, but we, we called it using our tongue. We called it lingua, we called it glossing. Um, uh, whichever language you come with, most languages, the word for languages, the word for languages is something to do with tongue. Um, and we, we recognized that this thing had gone on in us, but obviously something had happened in the brain as well, because it's one thing to have, we have the physical ability to move our tongue uh, around our mouths and to form dental sounds like T's and D's and to form fricatives like ka 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 and, and all kinds of other sounds. In fact, the whole range of human sounds is possible in every human being. Uh, we, I'm sure you all know uh, or have heard some of the I can't do that click. If anyone can do it, do, 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 um, do it for me. But you know that uh, click that's um, represented usually uh, as an exclamation mark that is used by some of the southern t tribes in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa. And um, there are all sorts of different sounds, like, for example, the sound as in Bach or, or, or Zeichen or, or Loch um, that, that, that have different ranges of gutturality. Uh, in Dutch, you know, uh, or whatever, which we don't happen to have in English, whereas we do have an aspirate sound, the H, the letter H, uh, which happens to use that. And as, as we can tell when we, when we hear French people speaking, unless their English is really excellent, it's very easy for them to forget the, the H and uh, talk about, I've, um, oh, I've gone out of my head, where's my ad to put on my head? Um, and we have, we have retained some of the... Uh, unaspirated words like honor, for example. We, 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 honor, we don't say honor. Um, it's all peculiar and illogical and strange, but um, anyway, there's a whole range of sounds, and all babies are able to make any one of those sounds, and very, very quickly, according to the sounds that are made around them, they sort of lose the ability uh, to, 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 to make all the ones that are unnecessary for the language that is going on around them. So, so if, if, you, if you put a, a, an English-born uh, baby straight into a, a tribe in, in, in the Kalahari Desert, it will be making, it will lose all the sounds that were necessary for, for it to speak English and keep all the ones that are necessary for it to speak the Kalahari language and, and so on, which is a pretty obvious thing. But it happens very fast, um, and it happens, as I say, without the child having to think about it. So what's necessary is this very fluent tongue and mouth and about 70 different muscles in the face. There's only one moving um, joint in the, in, in the whole head, uh, which is the jaw that can go up and down sideways a bit. But it's the only moving part, the only non-muscular moving part of the head. I mean, when you consider you've got, what is it, 52, uh, 26 bones in each foot, is it? Or even, even more, I can't remember. Uh, certainly a huge number. And yet, in, in, essentially, we've only got two bones in the whole head, which is just the one great big bounce with, with, with the swinging jaw, which can exert enormous pressure um, and can, um, can move up and down rapidly, and can use the tongue for uh, various plosive noises and different other sounds. Um, and most important, it can vary in pitch. And this is the, this is the, the secret of the, um, uh, uh, of, of the larynx, is how 
Um, is how is able to speak very, very high, or is it able to go very, 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 very low? Um, and can and some languages exploit that semantically so that uh, the same sound at a different pitch uh, will mean something completely different. Chinese famously, essentially, is arranged in pitches and, and, and so on. So there was all that, um, the, the sheer physical things that other animals don't have, this incredibly mobile face, uh, the, the ability of the muscles of the face to move at the speed at which they do in order to produce sounds through breath. A couple before me throwing their phones around. Fantastic. It's, it's, it's all right. She did, and then he did the same. So, so as not to make her feel silly, which I thought was rather nice. Sorry, it was a sweet little moment. Anyway, they probably don't even know each other. Um, but um, uh, they'll be married, and they'll remember this moment as how they met, and we'll all be invited to their wedding. And, um, and so, so this... Um, this is just a simple mechanical bit that we can vaguely understand because you can watch it happening in a human being. You can see the breath being pushed out through the larynx. You can use endoscopy and other, other medical uh, things to get inside and actually see how the larynx works. And as always with medicine, of course, um, the, the best indication of how something works is, is to see what happens when it doesn't work. The dysfunction is always the thing that tells you about the function. I don't suppose we'd ever really been able to guess what a liver did by looking at it. A liver is just a great slab of slimy matter that seems to be perfectly uniform, and yet it has about, oh, goodness knows, there's probably a doctor in the room here who will tell, tell me how many functions the liver has in heat exchange and, 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 and chemical um, functions of, of, of gigantic a number of, of, of functions, of hepatic functions, um, and, uh, but you could never tell by looking at it. You can't, because it's not like a machine. The heart, you might be able to work out. It took mankind a long time to do it. It wasn't really until, was it Gabriel Harvey in, in the Elizabethan age who w worked out the circulation of the blood. But language you could sort of see because it's a, me a mechanism that you can actually watch happening and you know what happens if someone loses a tooth. Um, uh, that you can hear how they lisp. So you can see how necessary the teeth are to certain sounds. Uh, if they have this, we all know how sensitive our tongue is. If we have the slightest uh, chipping away uh, of, a, of a filling or the addition of a new filling, uh, it takes the tongue uh, has a map of the mouth, which is incredibly sensitive. Uh, and, and it gets really annoyed by a little intruder that's in there because it, it knows it has to be constantly darting all over the place, either in order to eat and digest food or in order uh, to speak, as I am now, and to use huge ranges of different types of sound that involve complex different operations. So X, to say that the X at the end of complex is totally different from the umple uh, in the middle of the word complex, uh, and, and yet they all come out automatically, they all come streaming out. And where the hell do they come from? Um, I, I mean, it's um, some, some, at some point in the brain, and nobody knows how or why really this happened, we could see the advantages of it, as I say, because you can have a civilization uh, for, for good or ill. Um, you, can, you can tell stories about your ancestors. You can make explanations uh, of, of why it rains or why the sun is so hot or why the sun goes away at night. And you can make explanations of, as it were, how the leopard got his spots and why elephants have trunks. And you can, you can, you can make up fables and stories and, and instances and examples. And, and what's more, you can save, and this is what nature loves doing more than anything else, you can save an enormous amount of energy. Um, if, if every time I wanted you to understand the idea of a, of a gray pebble, 
I had to go out somewhere where I knew there were some gray pebbles and go and bring it and then show it to you and, and, and say that, and then have the next idea, whatever it is, um, uh, uh, which, was, which might be bookcase, uh, then have to go and get a bookcase, merely in order to say, um, um, I, for some reason, there was a gray pebble in my bookcase the other day. Now, I've saved myself a lot of calories just by using the words instead of having to get the objects. And uh, to go back earlier, when we were uh, 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 hunting in packs um, uh, in order to eat, um, uh, we saved ourselves an enormous amount of energy. You can watch how other pack animals hunt, dogs and wolves and so on, um, hy hyenas and, uh, and indeed the cats to some extent. Um, th they find ways of prowling around and cutting off um, um, things, but it, it's, it's, it's all improvised and it's all based on instinct and, uh, and watching and so on. Whereas, um, whereas human beings can get together and say, this is our plan. We, we can see there's a, um, uh, there's a kudu over there that, we, that will give us food for, for three nights. Um, it's walking in this direction here. I'm, it's probably staying there at the waterhole. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go around there and make a, a sudden noise which will make it run in this direction. You see what I mean? You can actually start to, to have a plan. Each one is different, and which the animal can, can't possibly predict and has no instinct um, to remember because it hasn't yet been done. In the same way that the sentence I'm giving you now has never been said before, this sentence here in the Apple uh, Covent Garden store that was, um, uh, that was burgled last night, no one has ever said this before, that sentence. Um, uh, and yet all the words are so simple. And, and there it is for the first time. And, and, and similarly, the way we started to behave is we were able to give each other ideas that had never crossed, um, crossed our minds before. The words themselves became the glue for a... For, for a way of examining everything and thinking of everything. And we were able to talk about, suppose I did this. Things like the, which in grammatically are very dully called the conditional if. Uh, words like if and un unless. Um, unless is like a sort of oiled hinge of a, uh, on a sentence. All, all this will happen, all this will happen, all this will happen, unless. Um, and I wonder if you know the story of, um, you probably know the word laconic. A laconic remark is a rather dry, Remark, a laconic. Um, you know, Yorkshiremen are often regarded as quite laconic, you know. Uh, it's it's, it's a, a dry wit. Uh, it, it, it comes from one of the words from, for Sparta, laconia, lacodymia, uh, all the were different words for Sparta. And there's a, there's a story that, um, that uh, when the uh, Athenians were fighting the Spartans um, and, uh, at the um, Peloponnesian War, and, 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 um, and then the Athenian messenger came to Sparta and said, if we defeat you, we will not leave one of your children alive. All your women will be raped and taken into slavery, and all your men will be killed. And the Spartans sent back an, an answer, if. And that was the original laconic reply. Um, and and, and it, it shows, in a sense, some of the, the, the magnificent power of, of just a simple, a simple word, being able to... to as it were, to define a people, uh, to humiliate another people, and also to show that, um, that nothing had been decided, that language is open and free at all times. And there's so much to talk about uh, on the subject that, 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 that I, can, I, I can almost can't, can't bear to bring myself to, to come to an end. But I'll tell you one thing, which is how I first realized there was something really extraordinary about this thing that we all did. Most of us don't question it, and most of us don't take much joy in it. We may have favorite poets, 
Um, I was oddly enough just reading a, um, I was reading a, a, a poem by Philip Larkin yesterday. I was staying at a friend's house, and, and on, on, on the bedside table he'd put a pile of books, and one of them was the poems of Philip Larkin, and I hadn't looked at them for a long time. And there was a, a poem dedicated to the jazz musician Sidney Bechet. And, um, and it just had a line in it that made, made me gasp because it was so beautiful. Um, I don't know if you know Sidney Bechet. I, th I think he played the, um, uh, the tenor sax or, 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 and, and possibly the clarinet as well. But um, he was an early traditional jazz musician, and, and Philip Larkin loved jazz. Um, and, um, and there's this line that says, On me, your sound falls as they say love should like an enormous yes. And I thought, what a, what a fantastic thing to write about a musician. So there's, there's language, in a, in a sense, simply that is a beautiful celebration of something. It is the best way to memorialize it. It's better than a statue, uh, sometimes, to have, to have words written about you. And, uh, and for me, the moment was when I watched a film when I was about 10 on television, um, uh, um, directed by Anthony Asquith, and it was Oscar Wilde's The Importance of Being Earnest. And, and I remember just, uh, just sort of crawling towards the television, my mouth gaping wider and wider and wider uh, in complete disbelief that this thing that we use, say, oh, mummy, I'm bored, and, 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 and I'm, can I have some more sugar puffs, and, and all, that's all we did with it, that there was Algernon saying to Sicily, would you be offended if I said that you seem to me to be in every way the visible personification of absolute perfection? And, and I remember literally reeling backwards when I heard that, and I said it straight back so that I wouldn't forget it. Would you be in any way offended if I said that you seem to me to be the visible personification of absolute perfection? And it was, it was both beautiful and witty, and I could, some part of me could tell part of its wit was that it used such absurd Latin words like visible you know, personification of absolute perfection. Uh, when usually loving uh, is done in Saxon, it's done in cooing with, uh, um, you know, uh, um, and, and anyway, I, I suddenly thought, my goodness, that this, I, I, I must find out more about this, this man, Wilde, and so I, so I, I the local mobile li library, we lived right in the middle of the country, arrived a few days later, and I got out his complete works. And from then on, I just simply became fascinated by the way one word could come after another and, and, and have an effect. And sometimes the effect is so astonishingly beautiful that you want to weep. Uh, sometimes it is so ugly and so horrific that you want to weep too. Um, um, uh, it, it is no exaggeration to say, I think, that the, uh, one of the acts that most of us would agree uh, was a, a supreme low point in the history of, of our particular civilization in the last 100 years, certainly, was the, the mass extermination of, of, of 8 million Jews and, Gypsies and, and others uh, by the Nazis, the Entlösung von Judas Problem in Europa, as they call it, the final solution of the Jewish problem in Europe. Um, now, it, it is a, a massively difficult thing to get your head around how ordinary people, and Germans are ordinary people just like us, and if we don't believe that, 
then we'll, we'll be doing to them what they did to the Jews. We will, we will be a, ascribing a, a racist characteristic just to Germans that is unique to them. I think we can all be grown up enough to know that it was humanity doing something to another parcel of humanity and, and that it was very extraordinary. And we've seen examples of it in our own lifetimes in Rwanda and Burundi and we've seen it in, 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 in other places where massacres of quite extraordinary brutality have taken place. And in each in each one of these genocidal moments, or uh, attempts at full genocide, these, uh, um, in each example was preceded by language being used again and again and again to dehumanize the person that, was, that had to be killed in the political eyes of their enemies. In other words, it began in, in the 1930s, it in fact began quite early, early little than that, but the, 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 the Jews were rats, were vermin, were vice, were affenmenschen, uh, ape men, uh, untermenschen, which is subhuman in German. They were subhuman, they were ape men, they were rats, they were vermin, they were a bacillus, they were a virus, they were anything but a human being. And, and the same thing happened on the radio as the Hutu and the Tutu were, were, were slaughtering each other. Was, again, the word rats was used, vermin um, and, and, and lice and insects. Uh, and and if, you start, if you start to characterize week after week after week after week after week, you start to think of someone you're slightly sullen and disagree, you don't like very much anyway, you're, you're constantly getting the idea that they're not actually human. Then it seems it becomes possible to do things to them that are, we would call, completely in, unhuman, inhuman, and lacking humanity. Though, oddly enough, we're the only species that does it. Um, it, it, is, it is interesting and, and important to remember that it is language that, that not only guarantees our freedom, free exchange of ideas such as this, in which one is allowed to say anything, in which one would hope everybody observes the decencies of debate and, and of good nature and is not cruel and unkind and uh, mocking and uh, derisory, unpleasant, uh, vicious, uh, or, or indeed whipping up uh, violence. But as long as ideas are exchanged freely, um, then, then we can more or less guarantee some level of stability within our society. But the moment we begin to use special language for special people and special... Um, special terms of, uh, um, of insult for special terms of people, then that's, we can see very clearly, and history demonstrates it time and time again, that's when people are suddenly, perfectly ordinary, able, uh, ordinary people are, are able to kill. There's an amazing book called Ach, die schöne Zeit, um, um, which, uh, which, which has recently, I think, been translated uh, under the title, Those Were the Days. And it is a quite horrific thing to read because it is so... Ordinary. It is simply the letters home from the, the guards and soldiers and SS members uh, and officers of the death camps of Auschwitz and Treblinka, um, home to their families. And they, they would, a typical letter might read, Oh, you would have been so proud of the man. We had an extra special action come in today on the train that we hadn't been warned about. It was a whole 700 extra had to be processed. The men never complained once. They went about their business. I was so proud of the man, especially as it was so hot. Um, uh, do tell young Klaus that I've seen the results of his history exam, and if he doesn't get a better grade, I should be very cross with him. Meanwhile, here is a bottle of plum brandy. 
And you look at that, and you know that that special action, that Zonderaktion, meant 700 people had come in, in order, men, women, and children had come in to be gassed and killed and burned. And he's writing home to his, and it's, the, it's, a, it's a father writing an affectionate letter to a mother. It's so human that, it, that it, it makes one gasp at how this kind of happened. And languages, languages is, is, is at the root of it. And I suppose that's why we have to be careful about our language, or at least it's why we have to be alert to it and we have to think about it. Um, there are so many issues and things that one could discuss. I, I don't know if any of you saw the program that was on last night with the, um, the magnificent Brian Blessed, um, uh, which was about swearing, which is a, a, a very interesting one. And the BBC gave us full reign to use as many F and C words as we wanted because we were extremely interested in why it was that some parts of our language are reserved for, for insult, uh, for cursing, um, and are, have a very, very special taboo place in our society, and whether they're the same across the world. Um, it does seem that in most cultures, anything to do with, um, with, uh, with, with pooing and peeing, anything to do with bodily juices that come from penises and vaginas and, and rectums, is always going to have some uh, element of insult uh, round, round about it, but not in all languages. There in, in some languages, you call someone a, a cock or a, a dick or, a, or whatever, and you, you might just as well call them a nose. They'll look at you in a rather puzzled way and say, well, I, what a strange thing to call someone. Um, um, in, 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 in other languages, um, the, there's nothing particularly offensive about, uh, uh, about references to the act of coition, shall we say, or fucking, as we usually say in English. Um, the, uh, the, 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 there's nothing particularly offensive about it, but the, the, it is offensive if you use the word in conjunction with somebody's mother and some other person, for example. In other words, you are, you are, you are, it is a, uh, you're, you're sort of libeling them, as it were. You're, you're libeling them. It's a whole series of kind of hip-hop jokes about your mother, as you know, and, and it, they go back to... Oh, they go back a long time, such, such insults. Um, and what is so fascinating is that these words li live in a special place in the brain. That from the f as we're beginning to learn, some alert part of us when we're tiny knows that there are certain things we do that our parents act differently with, uh, with us in, in, in conjunction with. So, for example, when we're giving potty training and when... When, when, when our nappies are being changed, and, and there, there's some kind of, so something about it, there's an extra tension that a child feels, and there's also laughter can be, uh, can be elicited, and a child very, very quickly learns that to earn laughter is almost as good as earning, is uh, as good as earning food, it's earning love in a kind of way, with a, that to get another human being to smile and laugh at it, in the right way, not mocking laughter, obviously, is, is a rich and rewarding thing. And at a very early age, a child learns, partly from its parents, usually from its brother, older brothers, brothers or sisters, and very quickly from other children of its own peer group, that there is a, there is a kind of, there, there is a sort of a garden of, 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 of things which grown-ups don't want us to talk about. And this is at the very time language is developing in us. So those words are stored in a special place, deep in the limbic system, in the, in the basal ganglia. Um, and and this, is, this is true of, of whatever, whatever word might be currently um, a swear word. So 
uh, for, for most of us now, gosh and God or uh, things like that are not particularly likely to be offensive and are not likely to be stored there, but, but there are some words which are new. Um, and of course, most people are aware of the condition of Tourette syndrome, though it's very important to point out that only 10% only of people with Tourette's are likely to have the, the coprolalia, the, the, the filthy speaking, um, uh, literally, um, that, that we, asset, we, we, we associate with, with Tourette's, in which there's an, uh, an uncontrollable impulse um, to say the F and the C word or the LS word, all kinds of mixtures of it. Um, and and no one is quite sure um, wh why this is, but what is interesting is that you can take an English child, for example, um, uh, this happened 10, 15 years ago, an English child with, with, with Tourette's and coprolalia uh, moved to America and the, the, the words that came out were different. The, uh, suddenly, suddenly the N word was coming out uh, an enormous amount, which is now probably the most offensive word in our culture currently. It wasn't 40 years ago. You could make in 1954 a film like Dam Busters and it could be the name of, of, of a dog and, and we, or, or indeed the code word for the destruction of one of the German dams in the Dam Busters was the N word. And I find it a very difficult word to say. I'm quite happy to say fuck um, or indeed cunt if you want me to. But uh, I have no particular objection to that. And after all, it is surely, it would be an, an immense mystery to someone from another planet to look down on Earth and see all the terrible things we do, the really monstrous things of which we are capable, the cruelty, the torture, the abuse, the neglect, the starvation, the physical um, uh, attacks, the, 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 the molestation, the, the, the taunting, the tormenting, the, the, the very worst that we can do, the taking of lives, the destruction of lives, the maiming, all those things. And they notice we do other things too, like we eat food and then we have to pass out of our bodies the bits of the food that are not particularly good for us. And they notice that we have this extraordinary act of coming together in order to uh, have the most tremendous amount of fun and excitement and endorphin release and, and juicy releases, and, um, uh, which uh, has, has the byproduct, in, in certainly in the case of, uh, of, of differently uh, gendered uh, human beings, uh, in producing a baby uh, at the end of it. So one of, just about the most beautiful and extraordinary thing that humans can do. So the, 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 the race watching us would reason that as a people, we would probably have very bad words like torture, maim, harm, molest. These would all be, these would always, harass, you know, um, um, uh, cruel. All these words would be dark because they represent the darker side of us. But not at all. You come and say, oh, the traffic was torture, it was agony, it was murder. Um, um, and, <coughs> and yet the thing we do that's very beautiful, um, you get taken off television. You said, fuck it, before the watershed. Um, well, isn't that odd? What kind of a species are we that we should, we should use words like murder and torture, absolute ease about something, just, just traffic or, or, or the queue at Starbucks, something utterly trivial, and nobody questioned it for a second, and yet say the, say, say the word, you know, cock or, or asshole or something, and, and people react as if you've referred to something that is shameful and wrong. Well, it's not. We didn't ask to have ourselves or not. You know, there wasn't a list of checklists. I want to have a really dirty, disgusting, horrible thing called a rectum, and it's going to be horrible, and I'm going to have it. Um, uh, and I suppose if you've made it up yourself and you insisted on having one and showing it to everybody, people might 
then have some excuse for thinking it was an odd thing and, 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 and rather unpleasant, and they go, oh, there's that fellow with the arsehole. He's a really unpleasant person. But the fact is everyone in this room has one, or at least a stoma if they haven't, in order to replace a, uh, if they've had a, an unfortunate uh, dysfunction of their digestive system. And yet, and yet we go around the place as if we should be deeply ashamed of it. It's very peculiar, and it's only language that allows us to do that. <clears throat> because you can see animals behaving. Animals don't dress themselves uh, because they have no concept of nakedness. Now, whatever one thinks of the Bible, it, it is that Genesis is one of, it's not the only one that does it in the same way, but it's one of the smarter attempts to make a narrative out of this peculiar, perplexing question as to how human beings got to be different from everybody else. Now, we, we, we may not agree with the answer, which is that God made it so and did it in seven days, etc., etc., etc. Made man, took rib, made a woman, you know, gave dominion over the beasts, of all the rest of it. But the, it, it, it does say, well, at some point, we had the knowledge of good and evil, which we don't think, as far as we can tell, animals have. Now, obviously, you can never be certain, but I remember once being in the Amazon and looking at one of the most beautiful things you can look at, which is an Amazonian tree frog because they seem to have a sort of permanent smile and they're beautifully colored and they've got these lovely little paddy sort of um, uh, feet and, and, they, and, and they, they sit there and they've got beautiful, beautiful coloration. And, and, and I looked at it and I thought, I, I can be as certain as, a, almost as I can be certain of anything, that you don't wake up in the morning thinking, oh God, I was a bad tree frog last night. <laughs> and I wish I was a better tree frog. I, 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 no, I just... I'm not a good tree frog. I, 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 the other tree frogs are better tree frogs than I am. I, you know, they, they, all the shame, the guilt, the self-questioning, the sense that something is wrong and that something is right does not appear to exist in any other species except us. So Genesis um, tried to make a story out of how it could be, and they obviously had, they came up with the fruit the, we think of as, as an apple for some reason, but it, it's not said to be an apple, but anyway, the fruit uh, whereof thou shouldst not eat, um, and, 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 and the serpent, you know, the snake, gave it and, and, and man at it. And, and the first thing that happened, of course, if you remember, is that, they, um, is that it made them realize they were naked. But that's the most peculiar thing to say. It made them realize they were naked. It's, you, can only be, you, can only, you can only realize you're naked if the word naked exists. It, uh, if, if there was a word, uh, klimp, which meant someone who showed their ears, I'd say, you're all klimp! And you'd go, oh my god. I had no idea. I'm so sorry. I'm so embarrassed. I'm Klimp. Well, that's what, for some reason, we did as a species. We invented a word to describe our natural state, and we associated it with shame. And that's a very peculiar thing for any species to do. Um, smart as we may be, and we're in, in many respects, what you might call the cathedral of smart here, a, a, an Apple store. Uh, smart as we are, we are still really peculiar, complex, and immensely self-contradictory creatures, and, and filled with these peculiar hang-ups about who we are and what we should be guilty about. We spend most of our time refusing to apologize for the things we should apologize, um, the acts we know that cause pain and unhappiness and misery around the world, or the, the very fact that we know there's pain and misery and unhappiness around the world and do very, very little to alleviate it and tend to vote according to enriching our own pockets rather than making the world a better place. We're all guilty of it, all of us. Um, and we're also guilty of um, uh, all kinds of other shame about our bodies and about, 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 you know, about the smells we make and the things. I mean, it's obviously extremely 
nice not to make smells all over the place, but to put them in a special room with, with, with at least a double doors, ideally. Um, is it just a practical uh, solution to the problem that we do all make a smell, but, but we shouldn't be quite so ashamed of it, perhaps. Um, and certainly shouldn't be ashamed of the fact that, that uh, we like rubbing each other up against the bodies of, uh, of those whom we find attractive and who find us attractive, and, uh, and it's, it's a really nice thing to do and, and has a rather splendid climactic results, which, which seem, seem really very generous of nature to have uh, given us and, and um, really um, are marvelous. And, and how could, I mean, how could you not do it? You know, the, the, when the Kinsey report came out, uh, Dr. Kinsey in the 50s shocked the American nation with two books. First was the sexuality of the, of the American male and the second was uh, of the female. And, and in the sexuality of the male, he simply talked to as many people as he could and got them to be extremely frank about their sexual experiences from their earliest ages. And, and he, 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 so it was just, a, it was really just basically a, a vast uh, data bank of, of, of people's sexual behavior. And, um, and one, when it was published, it caused an outcry in you know, Eisenhower's Milk and Cookies America. And um, um, there was one, um, one journalist who said, <laughs> Dr. Kinsey, if, if we're to believe um, your book, it says that 95% of American males masturbate regularly. What do you think this says about the American male? And Kinsey said, it tells us 5% are liars. <laughs> and <laughs> I, think, I think that's, that's the thing. So, you know, so, certain disciplines like science and, and linguistics, oddly enough, are a route into the truth of who we are. And I think language reveals more truth about us, as much when we lie uh, as at any other time. I've, I've spoken probably much longer than, uh, than I'm supposed to, but I, and I would love to hear any questions that some of you have. And if you have a question you'd like to ask about any aspect of language, do, 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 do wave, and there's, there are people around with microphones, and they'll hand you one, and you'll be able to be heard. Um, so there we have someone in the front row there. We can start. Um, I expect microphones could get to the upper rail, I'm not sure. You could just simply yell, but as this is being vodicasted. Anyway, so, yes, question. Yeah, um, I was just wondering what you think is currently the biggest unanswered question in linguistics and whether you have any sort of pet theories uh, to suggest. Yes, what, what, is the, what is the biggest unanswered question in linguistics? They, I mean, it still it seems to be true that the, the, the schism in linguistics, without getting too technical about it, is, has been this um, argument between... Uh, what's called the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, the, which is this hypothesis that you perceive the world differently according to your language. And there are, for example, there are Aboriginal tribes in Australia who use absolute rather than relative words um, um, for, 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 the, for, for position. So, for example, they would say, could you pass the, the salt? Uh, it's just the northeast of you. Um, and wherever they are, they know where north is, where east is, where south is, where west is. There are only a few languages like that. And they seem extraordinary to us. We use relative positions, positions relative to our own body, our left-hand side and our right-hand side. And we know which is someone else's left-hand side and right-hand side. So the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, which most conventional linguists would actually call the Sapir-Whorf fallacy, is that languages are distinctive and they are, they, 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 the culture of a people is poured into their language and it alters the way they perceive the world. Now, most of us probably think that, don't we? Uh, most of us have an instinct that that might be true. It feels true, it feels right, that somehow the language is such a huge part of the culture where you're from that along with the religion and the architecture and the landscape, it forms your character. 
And it seems odd to us that to most linguists, they have the Chomskyan view, which is that all languages are basically the same. They are identical. As Steven Pinker, who is Chomsky's, Chomsky's perhaps greatest sort of most popularizing um, evangel, as uh, you might say, although he's much more too independent to be that, is a Canadian uh, neuroscientist and psychologist and, and linguist who, who works at Harvard in, in, uh, in, in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, as he says, any foreign, any foreign, any alien species that came and looked at the languages of the Earth would not remark on how different they all were, they would remark on how utterly the same they all were. Yes, there have a question here. Hello, how are you? Very um, well, I you. have a question regarding what you said about how language evolves over mm. time, say 50 years ago, saying God mm. or bloody would have... Mm. Whereas language now, the richness and diversity of the English language is condensed to quite a large degree with regards to, say, text speak and Twitter and so on and so forth. Mm. The elaborate words have become shortened. In your personal opinion, what, what's your take on this? That the glorious English language has become so... Well, it's an interesting question. It's one I'm often asked. And um, um, the reply I usually give is you should see the letters of uh, one of the greatest letter writers in the English language, who was um, the poet Lord Byron. And, and they had a problem in the, in the um, late, 18th, late 18th and early 19th century. It's a problem we would call bandwidth, uh, but it essentially meant it was the cost of the paper uh, and ink, um, which had to be franked by a member of parliament or an aristocrat. This was before the penny, penny post, of course. He was an aristocrat, so he could frank his own letters. Um, but it was very expensive. You then had to send a courier to take this letter to a place. In other words, there was very limited bandwidth, so you had to cram it all in. And if you read the letters of Byron, he will use words like YR for your, and WO for without, and he will do exactly what we do for exactly the same reasons. Um, the the limit, limited bandwidth of SMS when it first came out meant that you tried to compress it as much as possible while still making it understandable because there wasn't the bandwidth. Now, of course, with Twitter, you will rightly argue, we have voluntarily uh, uh, given ourselves limited bandwidth. There is a rule that, we, that we, we mustn't exceed our 140 characters or, or, or it'll go off into some horrible twit-longer place where you have to click through to read the rest of it and it's considered terribly bad manners. Um, my own feeling is that this hasn't impoverished language at all. Uh, I don't think... I, I, I'm, I think it's probably true of almost anybody I know who really loves and venerates languages is that they are not the same people who worry about usage. Of course, I try because I can't help it. I would not use the word disinterested to mean bored or uninterested. I still use its, as it were, original meaning, which is not to have an, a personal stake or interest in something. To be a disinterested party is to be someone who has no interest in this particular matter going on. Well, nowadays, almost everybody uses the word disinterested to mean uninterested. But there are pedants around the place who go, no, you look it up in a dictionary, as if a dictionary somehow proves it. A dictionary is merely a record of how we use language. Um, another good example is meld. Any German speakers in the language will, will probably know what the word meld in English is likely to come from. It comes from melden, which is a German verb meaning to announce. 
Now, in the 1950s, there was a canasta craze. Um, the card game canasta swept around um, rather in, in, in the way that top trumps or, or who knows what else sweeps. Um, uh, and, um, and everyone was playing canasta. And, and you lay down um, combinations of your cards. And when you gather all the numbered cards together, so you've got all the fours, it's called melding them. But it's, the melding is the act of putting it on the table. You're announcing that you've got them. Now, to the English ear, meld was a wonderful, a wonderful accident because it sounded like a mixture of melt and weld. And it just sounded as if it ought to mean to meld together. And it's come to mean that. Now, there's no good complaining that it shouldn't mean that. It means to announce. It has come to mean to, to meld together. And it's a rather nice word. Uh, and, and, and anybody who complained about it would be very odd, in the same way that wood used to mean stupid. Wood, W-W-D, as well as meaning wood is in trees, which is wood, and so on. Things, language changes all the time. But the idea that there was once a pure, perfect language that was better, a better English, is, is I think, not true. Um, we sometimes... It, odd, we're very odd and inconsistent. Uh, in, in English, when we say, say forget, we use the stronger form in the past. So um, we say, I have forgotten. Uh, uh, I, I, he, he's forgotten it. Uh, and and we, we naturally expect that. And we think, oddly enough, we think it would sound rather old-fashioned, because you hear it in Shakespeare. Oh, I quite forgot. Oh, he has forgot. Um, uh, it's used poetically. But Americans use it not just for forget, they use it for get. I have gotten, I've gotten fed up with this, I've, I've gotten this, I've gotten that, um, and we don't. Now, it, there's no possible virtue in saying that we are, our version of saying I've got is better than gotten, or for an American to say gotten is better than gotten. They're different. It's a, and, and to me, change in language is like biodiversity in nature. The more it changes, the more thrilling and exciting it is. And, and I would say, here we are in London, which is a magnificent city, an extraordinary metropolis. One of the things is, that makes it so different from Paris, for example, which is now only two and a half hours away by train, is, is Paris is like, it's like a museum, it's a jewel. In the, it has in the center, in the Ile de la Cité, has the, 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 the Notre Dame Cathedral and the, the medieval beginnings of Paris. And then it has this planned system of boulevards and amazing arches and, and the l'étoile into which they all go and so on. And, and partly this is because Every time Fritz coughed, um, René curled up into a small ball and put up a white flag, so that it, it, it meant that Paris, well, in, in a nice way, obviously, um, it meant that Paris wasn't bombed or bombarded and destroyed in the way that London was during the Blitz. Um, but what it means is you're entering Paris. Paris, as, as, a, as a city, is a, is a magnificent museum. Um, whereas London, of course, because of bad planning and terrible architecture and because of a, uh, the way we do things, is very higgledy-piggledy. You, you go out into a street and you can see next to each other an Elizabethan building is next to a 20th century building and the other side is a Georgian building and the other side there's an Edwardian building and then there's a Queen Anne building there and then there's a, there's a, there's a Gothic church next to it, all crammed together. And the English language is like that. Every time we speak, we speak in a mixture of discourses, naval, criminal, financial, legal, military, prison, th thieves' cant, 
uh, American, Australian, all kinds of these discourses rub along with each other so that we can use... For, most of what I've said to you today, probably you think because Stephen Fry speaks a bit like that, so it's very ordinary English. If I'd spoken the words I had spo I've spoken precisely today, uh, uh, um, 60 years ago, people would have thought that I was peppering them with Americanisms. Most of them we can't even recognize now as being Americanisms. If you read a book of the 1920s and 40s, especially by a, a splendidly snobbish writer like Dornford Yates or John Buchan, they say, oh, I hate those Americans, Americanisms like, um, what use is that or something? And you go, crikey, is that an Americanism? Uh, because it's so absorbed and it's like our food. Our food, bland English food, um, do we want it to stay the same? Do we want it to be? It's nice to have Yorkshire pudding and roast beef, but isn't it extraordinary that we've added to it? We've now added, we're now aware of focaccia, and we're aware of chilies and all types of capsicums, and we're aware of fusions and, and, and mixtures that had never been available to us before. Uh, and our cuisine is all the richer for it. And I think our language is all the richer for, for the additions and indeed the, com the, the compressions as well. Uh, and, of course, don't forget that bandwidth is interesting. And technology is moving so fast. And here in this building, you will see in a few weeks' time, you will see a machine, that you'll might, some of you might even buy one, which will show you just a little bit of the direction of travel into which, into which communication might go, which could stretch out the way we, we, we communicate. That as voice recognition becomes more and more reliable uh, and people start to, to talk emails to each other, um, you may well find that we'll be back at a time of uh, much more circumlocutory and periphrastic discourse, if I can put it that way. Sorry, I, I don't know, do wave at me if I'm overrunning or anything. Who, who, over there, gentlemen, or the lady and gentlemen, they can each ask a question as, uh, uh, they can each ask one if they like. I'll um, try and answer more quickly as well. I do apologize. I'm you were really talking appalling. about Byron having to sort of uh, limit the words that he was using. Do you mm. think that words and language can be luxurious or a luxury at times? Words and language, they could be luxuriant in the same way that hair can be or clothes can be. I, I agree. And I think clothes are sometimes quite a good um, image or, or, or analogy to use uh, with, with language. When, when people moan about how young people use language, they forget they're using, people use language to their own peer group in a completely different way to the way they use language to their grandparents uh, or to toddlers. We have different languages for different people we speak to. And it would be a most peculiar person who spoke in exactly the same way they speak to their very best friend, uh, to their grandmother. It, that would be a pretty weird thing, because there'd be quite likely a few phrases and references that your grandmother would rather not hear, uh, would rather complicate or upset her, uh, and she would be offended. So we cut our language to suit the person, our interlocutor, the person with whom we're speaking. It's exactly the same thing as when we go to work. Uh, Apple is a culture that famously doesn't insist on suits. IBM, its biggest rival back in the um, late 70s and early 80s, before Microsoft became the great rival, uh, was the, the nickname of IBM was, was the Big Blue because every IBM executive had to wear a blue suit. It was, it was company law. It's in the same way you, you have to use a kind of language. Uh, it's a very good example of how that doesn't always work. Uh, Disney, um, the Disney Corporation sent an email many years ago, an inter-corporate inter, inter email saying the use of the word Mauschwitz to describe the Disney Corporation is not to be tolerated. And within seconds, people were using the word Dachau 
<laughs> I, think, I think it tells you something about the human spirit and the attempt to, the attempt to control language is utterly futile. And, and people will use language to, be, to, to rebel and to be witty to be, and, to share, uh, and to show their shared, their shared understanding. The moment we speak to each other, especially, it's especially true of speech, this, um, we, um, we are, we're aware of uh, age difference, because uh, this could be on the telephone, we might not be seeing each other. Uh, we're aware of age difference, class difference, if you're English, God help us, education difference, possibly, regional difference, uh, gender difference, even sexuality. I mean, there is a, there's a gay accent. I, I interviewed a man um, whose job is to de-gay the accents of gay American actors who, who don't want to sound too gay when they're and, you know, they want to be in the Teen Wolf movies, and unfortunately, they may look really buff, but they sound like this. And, and so, you have to teach them not to speak that way. And who knows why it is that there is a gay accent, but oddly enough, it exists in, in other cultures and languages too, you know. You have, um, um, you have Welsh, you know, you can be, you have, you have Welsh queens are very funny, or bless her. I'm no size queen, it was that big. I once heard, which, um, and, 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 and Scottish and Japanese and, and, and so on. So, I mean, there are all kinds of different languages. And, but the point is that not, not one of them is decisive. We have the choice of using them in exactly the same way as we have the choice of using different clothes. We can wear soft, informal clothes or, or, for, or real party clothes, and we can use party language uh, and formal language, or we can use... Uh, just soft, comfortable, lazy, slurry language. It doesn't, doesn't make us bad that, that we wear jeans, but it might make us bad if we wore jeans to the funeral of a, of a much-loved relative, because that would just somehow not show respect. So I think we're all intelligent enough to realize that, you know, because one of the most silly human faults is to say, oh, once you go down that path, dot, 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 as if we're not all possessed of individual wills and wit, and we can't see well, we go down a bit down that path, and then we move, move away from it. But instead of which, people say, oh, once you go down the path of saying that spelling is acceptable, then any spelling becomes acceptable, and any language becomes acceptable. And this obviously isn't true. Part of the problems with being human is our consciousness. It's the thing that has given us everything around us here, all, all the magic through which people are watching me around the world uh, uh, on, on the... On the various podules and and machines, and it's given us the magic that's lit it and and enables you to hear my voice electronically. But it also it also makes us incredibly stupid sometimes. Sometimes the very fact that we think is what kills us. And a very good experiment was done years and years ago, um, by uh, where you just put a series of mice um, in a glass tank uh, on some water. And the, the, the mice don't know they're on water, and they don't know that if they went all to one end, that end would get heavier, and it would dip, and they would fall, fall they all, all go, well, drown, or at least they get, get very wet. So they, they just wander around randomly, and they stay afloat forever. The moment you put, scale it up and put humans in it, it sinks in a second, because everyone's going, oh, it's going that way, well, I better go that way, and everyone, everyone does the same thing, and, and so, of course, the thing collapses because we're thinking too much. And that's pretty much a description, is it not, of what happens in financial markets. Whoa, we're going to go this way, no, we're going to go this way, and we're all drowned. And we're suffering from that at the moment. So sometimes, um, the, the, very, the very gift that I'm talking about is, is a kind of curse, and we can, which of us hasn't looked at a dog, you know, lying asleep in, in front of a fire and envied it, or a cat licking itself on, on, on a mantelpiece and thought, you lucky, lucky bastard. 
You don't have exams tomorrow. You'll never have exams. You don't have a report to finish. You haven't got 70 emails in your inbox, and those are just the starred and flagged ones. You haven't got, you lucky, lucky bastard. So this, this thing I'm talking about is this, is this extraordinary blessing that has brought us all here together, has enabled us to exist in, in, in the condition we are, but it has also, also gives us such grief, such self-doubt, such questioning. It's the questioning that gives us remarkable solutions and amazing toys and incredible visions of the way the world and the universe work, uh, amazing insight into the structure of matter at, 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 the, at the widest and narrowest levels. But, but, but it, also, it also stops us living sometimes um, by instinct and um, with ease and um, it just, oh, you know, it, 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 it allows us to become obese um, because um, we're so clever with food, we eat far more than we were ever designed to. And so you get like me and you get a big tummy and a wobbly chin and you think, you think awfully about yourself. And, and, and you, you do question whether being a human being is a great blessing. Um, the, the Rhodes, um, Cecil Rhodes, the founder of, uh, of uh, the, you know, the diamond industry in South Africa and the country that was named after him, Rhodesia, that we now call Zimbabwe and Northern Rhodesia, which we call Zambia. Um, he said to have been born British is to have drawn first prize in the lottery of life, which if anybody said now, of course, you'd just laugh. I mean, it is exactly a preposterous remark. But, but, but we sometimes think that about, about ourselves, that to have been born human, especially religious people, think we are especially privileged above other, other animals. And there was a, 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 a real... Uh, you know, there are issues with which you can choose to take up with religious people or not. And certain churches, of course, deny the existence of a soul in an animal. And therefore, it sort of, you know, doesn't go to heaven and doesn't go to hell, but it has no soul, and therefore, it doesn't need the same care and love and attention uh, that, um, that we do. Uh, and many of us would think that was wicked, that animals need just as much love and care and attention as we do. Indeed, many of us think they need more, because, because we have this consciousness, we know what we're doing to animals. If, if one kind of species makes another kind of species extinct by eating them all, all up, it's not its fault, because it doesn't really know it's doing it. It's just saying, well, there's another meal. And then suddenly, it's got nothing left to eat, and it dies out, so two species have died out. But we know what we're doing, and we know what we're doing through language. Through, I, I'm sorry, but I, I, well, I don't know what time you're supposed to do. Anyway, um, um, so what time did I start? Half past seven, I was supposed to do it. Gosh, I've gone on a bit, haven't we? Uh, one more. I'm getting a one more. I'm sorry. There. So who, would you like to be that one more? You've got, the, you've got the microphone right next to you, so you might as well be. There you are. This is uh, possibly slightly less intellectual than the last oh, one. Oh, good. If you, um, if you had to invent a new word, what would it be and what would it mean? If I, it's really weird you should say that. If I had to invent a new word, what would it be and what would it mean? Carry on holding with the thing you're holding there. Um, <clears throat> Hugh Laurie and I did invent a new word. <clears throat> and um, we, there was a time when we started, when we just uh, left university, and um, you may have noticed I still, and he still, to some extent, are really quite appalling whores when it comes to um, uh, not minding doing advertising in, in various things, um, whether, whether, whether it's because we're worth it or because, um, uh, uh, or, or because we just enjoy it or we're greedy, or I don't know what it is. But we used to do, quite, from quite early on, radio ads because, you know, it's a reasonably flexible voices or we could do end lines, you know, and because you're lovely, Revlon has created, etc., etc. Anyway, in, in these um, <clears throat> little glass booths we used to sit <clears throat> and do stuff, 
we realize there's, there's, a world, there's a word pop shield, which describes a little um, thing, that, a little square thing that goes right in front of a microphone. And, and when, when, when a plosive, which is a B or a P, when, when a plosive is particularly hard hit near a microphone, it, it, it's called popping, it pops the mic. And it's a, we, we've all heard the sound, it's a kind of distortion. And, and so you can have a, a pop shield. There's also, of course, there are, there are effects that wind and, and other sounds can have. Um, and we know there's this word pop shield, that's fine, but there was also a spongy thing that you put on top of the microphone. Uh, and it's just a spongy thing that goes on, it sort of fits on, you know, in a grey sponge thing. And I, I remember we asked the sound engineer, what's that called? He said, um, sponge it doesn't have a name. So Hugh and I said, well, that's not right. And so we gave it the name Spoffle. We thought it should be called a spoffle. It sounded sort of right. It's a sort of muffly, spongy, had those sort of elements in it of spoffle. And every now and again, we'd say, oh, yeah, the voice is coming through a bit hard. Do you think um, we should have a spoffle on the mic? And, and, and someone who'd never heard the word would know exactly what we meant. The context made it so obvious. He'd give it. And our moment of greatest delight was when we went into, in fact, not far from here, off, off Floral Street, there used to be a place called Angel Sound, and we went in there to do one, and, and the, we'd not been in there before. And the engineer said, I'll just get a spoffle. And we went, yes! <laughs> we'd made up a word, and, and wow, you know. Um, so th th that was very thrilling. Um, my late great friend, um, um, uh, Douglas Adams, wrote a book called The Meaning of Lif, um, in which he and John Lloyd, with, with whom he wrote it, John Lloyd uh, produced Blackadder and, uh, uh, and Not Nine O'Clock News, and, Indeed, QI, the program I, I do, and, and um, um, many, other, um, uh, th many other things. And, and the two of them were great friends and, and uh, comic geniuses in their way. And, and in the Meaning of Lift is a wonderful book because they, they realized there were all these things we do as human beings for which there isn't a word, and there are all these words for, for which there are no meanings. And the words for which there are no meanings are place names. You look at an English... The, the, you know, just, just England or the British Isles alone, you look in the, in the index at the back and you see all these fabulous words. And so they, they thought, well, you know, there are lots of things for which there isn't a word, so we'll give them that. So th that's a wonderful book. I'd highly recommend it. Perfect laboratory book. So, for example, there's um, oh, um, um, Steckley, I think, is, is the way sellotape behaves when you're tired, which is, which is really good. Though. And the one, I, the one I use most is Lowther. Um, and to, uh, it's a verb, and it's obviously a place called lather, but it, um, it's a verb, and it means to talk with your friends about which cuisine you're going to have after you come out of the cinema, uh, whether it be French, Italian, uh, uh, Thai, until such time as all the restaurants are closed, which is sort of what we do. Oh, just stand here lathering all, well, let's go and just choose one, does it matter? But I said, that's a really useful word. So um, uh, language, language can do that. Much fun can be had with it. Um, um, I, I don't know how to thank you enough. You've been extremely patient. I'm sure there are may, many other questions you would have loved to have asked. Um, all I would ask of you, um, and I'm sure I don't need to, the fact you've come shows that you have one of the greatest human qualities, which is curiosity. And, um, and um, all I'd ask is that, is, is that I, I, I sort of think it, sh it should be available as a thing to put on a mirror. You know that, that sort of filmy plastic that they use to hold license discs on windscreens? You should get one of those to put, and you, and put it on your mirror and put a little disc, and every time you have to brush your teeth, um, just remind yourself in the morning about language. 
and, 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 and remind yourself that you don't have to use it in the same way all the time. That you can use new phrases, find new words, make up new words, um, um, make, uh, you know, quite common in the 20s, it's become quite common again to abbreviate for fun. You're talking about abbreviation as a bad thing, but uh, there was a collaborator of P.G. Woodhouse who uh, um, said, uh, he was talking about uh, somebody said, oh, um, he said, uh, oh, uh, he's a, uh, um, what sort of chap is he? Oh, splend, splend, sunny disposition. And, and Woodhouse said to him, why do you abbreviate everything? He said, I don't know, it's just a hab. <laughs> and, and, you know, it just, but to play with it. The fact we have this resource available to all of us for free, that we, we've never had to pay a penny to get it, it's been given to us by nature, and we have it, we can, we can do it to do amazing things, to, to delight, to solicit, to beguile, to, 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 to seduce, uh, to enrage, to provoke, to question, to think, um, just simply to, to, to make someone's day happier. Um, and just the simple sound of the tip of the tongue on the, you know, the front of the teeth can in itself be a delight to listen to. So, all of, so look in your mirror every morning as you brush your teeth and think of your tongue and think about how you're going to speak more interestingly and with more fun and flair and passion and joy because all of you can speak and that is the most miraculous thing about us, I believe. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.